Warning. This podcast includes graphic material of sexual assault and murder. Viewer discretion is advised. March 17, 1942, John Wayne Gacy Jr. was born to John Stanley Gacy and Marin Elaine Robinson. As a child, Gacy was quiet but a helpful young boy to his mother. Gacy was content working around the home, which made him seem more feminine towards his father. John Stanley Gacy was an abusive alcoholic veteran from World War I. He would beat and emotionally manipulate everyone in the home when he was not working as a mechanic. John loved to beat his son the most, calling him many derogatory names for his quiet nature. His son Gacy never fought back and still had a strangely strong admiration for his father. During 1949, Gacy's father heard from a friend that Gacy, at seven to eight years old, molested a girl in his school. His father then beat him with a strap as punishment. Children can sometimes molest others, but this is often done when the child is in their tween or teenage years and often done to a younger generation who is either younger than six or sometimes a little older than six. It's even less likely that young Gacy would molest a girl due to the fact he was gay. That same year in 1949, Gacy was molested by a family friend Little Gacy never said anything, thinking it was his fault and afraid his father would beat him. Gacy suffered from random blackouts that doctors could not formally diagnose. The blackouts were so severe, Gacy spent a full year in hospital and his grades slipped as a result. Doctors told him not to engage in gym and sports, as physical activity seemed to agitate his condition. This stopped Gacy from participating in some of the more masculine activities at his school, which his father despised. Close friends, his mother, and two sisters were concerned for Gacy, but Gacy's father thought they were the result of his son being weak or faking the illness. John often assaulted Gacy, beating him for no apparent reason other than he felt like it. It is said from the old friend as well that Gacy never hit his father back during the altercations. At 18, Gacy got involved in politics in his local area. Learning towards the Democratic Party, he faced much criticism from his father, who called him a patsy, aka someone who is easily fooled or will take blame for things they didn't actually do. Gacy and his father made a deal for Gacy to slowly pay for the family car, and soon his father would change the license so it was Gacy's, not his. However, Gacy's father often punished Gacy by taking the keys away from him if Gacy did something he did not approve of. Getting sick of his father's possessiveness, he created an extra pair of keys for the car. Gacy's father responded by tearing out the distributor cap from the car. This rendered the car useless until it was fixed. Gacy apparently felt very drained and sick from the incident. After the car was fixed, Gacy wanted to some time alone and drove to LA where he worked as an ambulance driver and later a helper at the morgue. Spending much of his time there, Gacy got used to seeing bodies and found himself dealing with his sexuality inside of his head, his father still criticizing him from the inside. After coming back from LA, Gacy admitted to his mother he crawled into a teenage boy's casket and snuggled with him, 
touching the dead body. This was during his time at the morgue. Gacy's younger sister, Karen, remarked that she had always been by Gacy's side when she was young, and that he always looked out for her. Ever since he came back from LA, he seemed more distant, a bit more quiet, and a bit more reserved. After the initial sickening shock of caressing a dead teenaged boy, the adult Gacy came home asking if he could come back. Both parents agreed and Gacy came home. Despite dropping out of high school, Gacy graduated from Northwest Business College in Chicago. He was transferred to from a number of jobs such as the Nun Brush Shoe Company, where he jumped between salesperson to regional manager of the store. After becoming manager, Gacy got engaged to his first wife and co-worker, Marilyn Myers. Gacy soon joined the JCs, a leadership training group for business where he worked tirelessly. During his time in the JCs, Gacy got drunk with a male co-worker and crashed at the co-worker's place. This was where he was confronted by his sexual orientation again when the co-worker performed oral sex on Gacy. Later that year, Gacy became vice president of the store and was considered the third best worker in the state of Illinois for his work in the JCs. Marilyn and Gacy moved to Waterloo, Iowa, where Gacy became the head of the KFC building, where he hired many teenagers, both men and women. Gacy began to slide into his sheep's clothing by hosting a club for co-workers to come and relax, to drink and play pool. Gacy only interacted with the boys who attended the club in the KFC basement and made sexual advances towards the underage teenagers. If the boys in the club resisted, Gacy just laughed off the advances and claimed it was a joke. Later that year, in 1966, Gacy's wife gave birth to their first son and later a daughter, and it was then that Gacy's father apparently apologized to him, telling him he was sorry for all the emotional and physical abuse he put Gacy through as a child. Throughout his time at the Iowa JCs, Gacy was just as important member, who many considered ambitious and bossy, but a well-regarded leader. The JCs didn't always focus on business and leadership, and a much shadier side. The JCs also had a habit of swapping wives for sex, drug use, and creating porn and prostituting. As I mentioned, they were also a political group. The respect and power he earned being the leader of the JCs gave Gacy a high, as he molested one of the JCs members' sons. 15-year-old Donald Voorhees was a survivor from Gacy's manipulative abuse. Gacy encouraged Donald to come by his home and watch a straight porn film with him and drink alcohol, which Donald was probably used to with his father's involvement in the JCs. While giving him drinks, Gacy claimed they should have mutual oral sex convincing the 15-year-old by saying, You have to have sex with a man if you're going to have sex with a woman. Gacy consistently abused other young boys by giving them $50 to perform acts on himself and each other in the name of scientific experiments, quote-unquote. Another boy Gacy abused was encouraged to have sex with his wife. Later, Gacy blackmailed the same boy to have oral sex with him as a result. After the prior shock, Donald Voorhees and his parents reported Gacy to the police, and he was charged with sodomy and arrested. Not long after being arrested, Gacy convinced and paid an 18-year-old Russell Schroeder with $300 to physically assault Donald to scare him away from testifying. Russell led Donald into a park and sprayed Mason to the victim's eyes and beat him up. Escaping Russell, Donald went straight to police, who arrested Russell, who admitted Gacy had paid him to intimidate Donald. Gacy was given an extra charge, 
and a mental evaluation where it was discovered he had traits of antisocial personality disorder. John Wayne Gacy was sentenced to 10 years in prison. His wife left him very, very quickly, taking her two children. In prison, Gacy seemed more or less comfortable and swiftly gained the reputation of a model prisoner and cook for other prisoners. The next year, Gacy was denied parole, and as a way to try and sway the jury, he took 16 high school courses and got a diploma for achievements. During the, so the, during the sodomy charges, Gacy managed to convince his family that it was a political scheme in the JCs, and none of it was his fault. His family was confused and very concerned, but however, they believed him, as this was their son and brother. They didn't want to believe it. On Christmas Day, Gacy was given the news that his father died from cirrhosis, a condition of damaged insides due to alcohol he drank in his past. In response to the news, Gacy collapsed on the floor and cried like a child. Gacy later requested to get parole to go to his funeral, but was denied. June 1970, Gacy was given parole for 12 months out of prison, serving 18 months in prison out of his 10-year sentence for the sodomy of Donald Voorhees. One of Gacy's old friends from JC's, who still believed he was innocent, drove him to his mother's. Gacy was supposed to get a job in a local restaurant and stick by his court curfew and go back to his mother's house by 10 o'clock each night. Instead of doing that, Gacy took off and pretended to be a police officer, luring young boys to secluded areas where he would forcefully molest them. One boy accused Gacy of driving him home and attempting to rape him. The judge later dismissed these accusations, as the boy did not feel strong enough to testify at trial. These charges made it to Gacy's parole board eight months later. By that point, it was just too late, as Gacy had finished his parole and they could not charge him. With help from his mother, Gacy bought a home in Chicago, where he began to gain respect from the surrounding community, many finding him to be a charming leader, the neighbors being completely unaware of his prior convictions. Nice job, Chicago. Trying to keep up with his not-so-gay facade to the community, Gacy married Carol Hoff, a divorced woman with two lovely young girls. It took little to no time for them to become married on July 1st, 1972. On Mother's Day a year later, Gacy told his wife that was the last time they were going to have sex and that he was also bisexual. Gacy then began to spend more time away from the house, sometimes accidentally leaving men's IDs around the home. She noticed a lot of young teenage boys go into the garage of the home, and noticed a lot of gay porn magazines belonging to Gacy. Confused and obviously frustrated, Carol confronted Gacy, and Gacy angrily told her that it was none of her business. After a heated argument over balancing and checkbooks and money, Carol asked for a divorce. The marriage lasted until March 1976, a total of four shears. Gacy quickly began his business in a landscaping company in the neighborhood, which quickly became popular. As a result, he needed employees. Knowing exactly who he wanted to hire, Gacy got straight to work to plan for his new hunting ground of victims. Gacy began hiring young teenage boys and young men. Gacy's company was so successful that it went across a small number of states, so when Gacy needed to go somewhere for the company, he would drive around state towns to find boys to hire for his company. Gacy would often drive them to his home or hotel room to gain their trust and rape them. At this time, Gacy had created his persona clown character, Pogo. He often dressed up as Pogo in community events. 
delighting young children and earning more respect from the neighborhood. Gacy's clown persona is often how he's identified in the true crown community. Morbid interest in the killer clown has sparked a lot of inspiration in the musical industry, with many songs inspired from Gacy's clown named Pogo and his sickening crimes. Gacy murdered 33 confirmed young boys and men, raping them before painfully strangling them till they fell unconscious, only to be revived by the sick pedophile to endure more torture. Each victim met a similar fate, where Gacy often slowly gained the young boy's trust by hiring the men for his company, or offering them alcohol or a place to stay, which some of the victims clearly needed. Once the victim was comfortable with Gacy, he would dress up as Pogo the Clown and do a few friendly tricks. Then Gacy would offer the boys to try his infamous handcuff trick, where he would get the boys to put on the handcuffs and attempt to escape, the teens often thinking it was still just a game. Gacy would perform the trick himself, getting at the handcuffs in front of the boys easily, hiding the key he used to unlock himself from the young boy's view. Once the boys had the handcuffs on, they could not get free. They would chuckle and ask Gacy to help them out of the cuffs. It was then the victims would slowly realize the man they trusted was not letting them free. Gacy then would force the victim to the basement, where he would force the young boys to perform oral sex or anal sex, raping them repeatedly. He often changed them, chained them to the basement during the rapes, suffocating them by sitting on their chests and burning them with cigarettes. He also forced foreign objects into the victim's anus and used the young victims as horses, riding them on their backs with reins in a saddle. Gacy would often drag the humiliated victims to his bathroom, where he would almost drown them before reviving them just so he could make them endure more torture. Finally, the sadistic clown would strangle the victims for hours until they would beg him to kill them suffocating them with a rope, informing the young boys this was his last trek, quote-unquote. During the strangulation, Gacy would read a prayer from the Bible, The Lord is my shepherd. Wow. After the victims died, he would stuff them in a crawl space under his house, where he made the unsuspecting employees dig their own graves under the pretense it was a project for Gacy's house. Gacy had a huge amount of young victims. It would be too hard to cover the details to each individual person and not go on for hours and hours. The horror from Gacy's crimes affects not only his victims, but the victims' families and Gacy's own decent family members. I include quite often a lot of details, as I think these people deserve to hear how evil these sick murderous bastards are. But it's just as important to mention the victims as people, and not just as victims. As a result, I'm going to do a compilation of victims I could find information about. Gacy also had a large account of sexual assault victims, some survivors likely unknown to public knowledge, while other survivors to Gacy's abuse and assault voiced their experiences very bravely to police. Gacy kidnapped at gunpoint, abused, and nearly murdered Robert Donnelly. Robert suffered from much of the abuse mentioned above, until Gacy set him free with little to no reason. Brave Robert went straight to police, but found no action was done to convict Gacy further. Gacy claiming Robert was a willing sex slave who didn't get the money he requested. When Gacy was just starting up his company, he brought an un a lone, unidentified employee to join him for a business meeting. When they were alone that night in their hotel room, Gacy raped the boy, scarring him deeply. Not that this would help the fact that he's so scarred, but you'll be happy to know the boy came back to Gacy not long after the trip and beat the shit out of him in the backyard of Gacy's own home. 
it's it's kind of nice. I gotta admit, it's, violence isn't the answer, but I don't know. Sometimes it feels like it. Gacy attempted to rape 15-year-old Anthony Antsy, who somehow managed to escape the handcuffs calmly and put them back on Gacy. Gacy later remarked that he was not only the first one ever to escape from his handcuffs, but the first one to put them on him, which is shocking. Gacy tried to handcuff another survivor, David Cram, but David punched Gacy and freed himself. He later attempted to rape David again, but this time dressed up as Pogo the Clown. He was punched in the face by David, and Gacy later stated to him that he was no fun. Jeffrey Ringnall was a bisexual man living with his girlfriend and boyfriend when he was kidnapped by Gacy. Gacy tortured him with his own home-made rack and tortured him with many other methods from above. Eventually, Gacy dumped Jeffrey in the park, Jeffrey somehow still alive. After his girlfriend took him to the hospital, Jeffrey bravely told police of what happened to him and the monster he had met. Police, however, didn't even bother following up, and even though some good friends of Jeffrey, and Jeffrey himself spotted Gacy on the highway and reported his license plate, they did absolutely nothing. From here, I believe I will do a compilation of just victims and some of the things they were known for in their families or by the neighborhood. Some of them are kind of basic because I didn't find a whole lot of information on them, but it's something. I, I just feel really sorry for all those kids that went through something like that. It's just so sad, but I'm gonna try and have a little bit of a slightly lighter spirit about it because I, I don't think this needs to be all about Gacy, obviously. There's a lot better people to focus on here. Timothy Jack McCoy. Um, he was a young boy, 16 years old. Parents sent Timothy to relatives for a better home life. It was Timothy was close with his cousin, whom he considered a brother. He worked 12-hour shifts at a restaurant, I believe it was. He was extremely responsible. He went for a trip to Chicago, and Gacy showed him around his town. He made breakfast to thank Gacy for letting him stay in his home. And the thing was, he actually carried a knife to Gacy's room, and he didn't mean to be threatening, but Gacy thought he was gonna, like, Timothy was gonna kill him. Which Gacy was act- and Gacy probably just wanted to murder someone at that point, so... Honestly, they claimed it was self-defense, but it wasn't. And Gacy murdered Timothy right after he made him breakfast. It's just but his family really loved him, and his parents wanted him to have a better life. John Boltovich, I'm, I'm so sorry, I can't pronounce your name, was a young, ambitious person. He was close to his mom and dad, and he used to work for Gacy and was upset for his unpaid wages. Uh, Gacy sadly tortured him to death, and parents were, the, his parents were on top of things and urged police to search Gacy for him, uh, even after the two years after their son disappeared. Darrell Sampson was actually a very young, attractive boy. He was very close to his mother. He was 18. He never liked to leave his mom alone at night, like, in case somebody broke in or something. His mom burst into tears after they found his body three years after his disappearance in Gacy's crawl space. Randall Ruffett was 15 years old, and he was close to his parents and friends. I couldn't really find a whole lot of info on him, but... Sounds like he was a nice guy. 
Samuel Stapleton was a beloved son and brother. He was 14, went missing after spending time with his sister. He was found with Randall Raffitt under Gacy's house, and they were both likely murdered the same night, as Gacy sometimes liked to take two victims at a time and murder them the same night. Which is horrific. Michael Bonin was 17. He enjoyed fishing. He had a big, loving um, big sister. His big sister became a comedian, but heard many jokes about her brother's death from other comedians, which must have been a real turn-off, I imagine. William Carroll was 16. His nickname was Billy, and he had a song dedicated in his memory. I actually listened to it, and it's really beautiful, and it made me cry. So, it's a good song, and it has a good meaning, but if you want to be depressed, you can listen to it, and it's Lily Billy, Little Billy, that... Little Billy the Soak's Lonesome? I probably said that wrong because I am terrible at pronouncing anything, but I'll leave that in the description for anyone. James Hawkinson was 16 and had a loving big sister, and he was a sweet kid. Rick Johnston was uh, close to his mom and dad, and he was really nice to his, uh, to his siblings. He was a really good brother, and he was 17 when he passed away. Kenneth Park Parker was friends with uh, Michael Martin. Uh, both knew each other through childhood, and he was 16. This one's a bit kind of more interesting and in-depth, but Michael Martin was killed by Gacy and buried with his best friend, Kenneth Parker, supposedly by police. Mother claims body was not her son, and they actually did a DNA test and exhumed the body. And the DNA didn't match from the body to the mother, so it's possible that he wasn't murdered, but he hasn't turned up, and he would have been 14 in case he murdered him, and if he's still alive, nobody knows where he is. William Bundy, with absolutely no, you know, relation to Ted Bundy, was into fitness in the gym. He was 19, he was close with his family. He was having a Thanksgiving Day thing. Um, and he went off for a party. He said he'd be right back. He was missing for over 30 years, and he was finally identified as an unidentified Gacy victim. I can only imagine how hard that was for the family. John Steven Prestige was 20. He came to Chicago to meet a close friend, came for a job, and he was last seen drinking coffee with his friend until he went off on his own. And that's likely when Gacy got him and tricked him and murdered him and put him in his crawl space. Gregory Godslick, uh, it's kind of interesting with him because a lot of people were looking for him. He worked for Gacy before he was murdered. He was a loving boyfriend to his girlfriend. Close, he was very close with his family. He was 17 and when he went missing, family hired a private detective because they were sick of the police. And even Gregory's girlfriend confronted Gacy on her own on her boyfriend's whereabouts because she felt there was something up too. So that's a badass girlfriend and it's a shame he passed away. I bet they would have made a really sweet couple today. John Seisk, I I'm sorry I cannot pronounce your name, but Seisk was 19. Uh, he really loved his high school and he carried a high school rig around. And he that was actually how they helped identify him because Gacy had his ring kind of stored away in his house, and they later traced it back to him, and he was one of the bodies in the crawl space. From what I've read up on Matthew Bowman, 
He honestly sounds like such a sweet person. I would have loved to meet him in real life. He was originally from Crystal Lake. He was 18. He was very close with his sister. Sister reported him missing. He was also very shy, and he was a kind person who liked to help others. I read this thing, and I don't know exactly how legitimate it was, but... Anyway, yeah, there was this woman who was talking, who left a message on his funeral thing about him. And apparently, when she was really young, he actually... She was a little girl, she wasn't sure how to skate, and he, like, tied up little laces for her on her shoe. On her, like, little skates, and then she was able to skate around, so that honestly says a lot about Matthew. I really hope he's in peace now. Robert Gilroy was the son of a police sergeant. Uh, he was very academic, he liked to focus on school. He enjoyed horseback riding, and that was kind of cool to learn, and he was also 18 when he was murdered. John Mowley, Mowler uh, was 19. His sister had been murdered six years prior, so I can only imagine what it was like for his poor parents when he was murdered. And he was also in the Marines, and I gotta admit, I do love that smile on that picture. Russell Nelson was actually a bit older, I think in his 20s. He was smart, attending university. Before he went missing, he called his mom to wish her a happy birthday, which is really sweet. And he was also looking for work, so of course Gacy had to pick him up and offer him a job and probably just murdered him. Next is uh, Robert Winch. Uh, I hope I said that right. He had a very rough childhood, apparently. He ran away from a lot of foster homes. Uh, I can't say this for sure. It could have been that he just didn't like it there. He was abused, it's hard to say. He suffered from an accident that had scarred his bones, and that's how police identified him when they found his body. And he was 18. And what a hard life. Uh, David Talsma was 19, and there isn't a whole lot about him, but he was trying new experiences in life, and it could have been that since there isn't a lot of information that not a lot of people were looking for him or something, or maybe he did, I don't know. Anyway, that's all I can find about him. Tommy Boiling was a 20-year-old. He was actually married. Uh, he was a dad of a three-year-old son. His family was close to him, and in particular his grandma. He did have addiction issues, but uh, his family knew about it. William Kindred was a loving friend, loving boyfriend, and was trusting. He had a habit of hitchhiking, and he was 19. Uh, Timothy O'Rourke, he was open to friends and others about his sexuality, of being gay. He was very confident, and was very frequent at gay bars, and I imagine a lot of these other men were at gay bars too, probably. And Gacy often went to those, either because he wanted a date, but more likely he wanted to murder. And that's probably what happened to Timothy. Frank Landon was 19. He was learning about new experiences in life. Wasn't a whole lot on him, but it's a shame he passed away. James Mazzara, is a, he was, his family loved him dearly. He was really close to his brother. He disappeared after dinner with the family, and he enjoyed music because he wanted to go to a concert. And lastly was Robert Priest. He was 15. He looked so young. He absolutely loved his girlfriend. He was a very responsible person. He was very kind. His family was very close to him. When Robert Pre Press did not return to his job after his conversation with Gacy, 
Robert's parents got very worried and reported him missing to police. Police at first considered the 15-year-old a runaway until police did a background check of Gacy and discovered his abuse against children in the past. Police found Gacy's appointment book at the store Robert worked at and quickly called the man up. Gacy claimed his uncle had actually passed away that day and he could not talk right away. Eventually, police called him up again and the slightly agitated Gacy came forward to talk to police. Uh, however, he was covered in mud and he claimed he had been in a car crash previously. Police got a warrant to search Gacy's home and found no sign of young Robert, but found disturbing items such as handcuffs, a syringe, a knife, chloroform, and some police badges that were fake, but they looked realistic. Police then began a surveillance on Gacy, watching him for days on end and tracking his movements and actions. Gacy seemed okay with the surveillance at first, smiling and greeting police cars that followed him while having casual conversations with the officers. The surveillance team actually had to remind themselves multiple times what this man had been accused of in the past and what he might have done to a 15-year-old they were looking for. As surveillance wore on, on, Rob on Robert's family continued to press for answers. Gacy started showing signs of stress, becoming unshaven and much less friendly with cops watching him. Police went in to talk to Gacy again, one officer distracting Gacy with conversation, while another officer found more evidence to convict Gacy. Later, police interviewed employees who had <clears throat> explained Gacy's odd projects for the crawl space under his house, where he often dumped lie. Police also interviewed survivors of Gacy's crimes in the past, such as Jeffrey Ring Null, Robert Donnelly, Anthony Onassi, and David Cram. During the interview with Gacy once more, Gacy apparently said clowns can get away with murder, which is so creepy he was flexing that to the police officers when they were close to convicting him, but not quite. It's just so freaky. After Gacy quickly drove to police one more time, they showed him the front page of the newspaper for the missing Robert Prest. Police asked Gacy to confess, and Gacy answered, the boy's dead, he's in the river. It was then revealed Gacy had killed around 33 boys, showing the police through a crude drawing where all the bodies were buried in his house, and guessed where all the bodies might have been thrown in the Chicago River. Eventually enough evidence was gathered, and the police began to search Gacy's crawl space and one by one, hundreds and hundreds of body parts were found, all belonging to young boys and young men. Police searched the river and found around six bodies. On the last day of his freedom, Gacy went to his old friend from the JCs, who had picked him up from the jail, from the jail he was at, and he cried, giving him a great big hug and breaking the news. On his drive to the police station, he was praying the whole time, crying only for himself. Gacy was charged with 33 murders and put on trial. His defense claimed he was insane during the time of his murders, but survivors, family members, and doctors agreed this was not the case. Jeffrey Rignall amazingly came forward to the jury and recounted the horrible day with Gacy. Jeffrey began to cry on stage after the more grisly details and vomited, being excused from the stage. Donald Voorhees, if you remember, he was the original charge that gave Gacy a criminal record came as a young adult to explain his history with Gacy and the abuse he suffered. Donald was shaken and had a very quick testimony before he was he stepped down. Robert Donnelly came to testify from the abuse he suffered from Gacy. During his brave recount of the hours he spent tortured by Gacy, he cried on the stand. 
Gacy apparently thought this was funny and laughed repeatedly at Robert. Gacy's lawyer um, even had the gall to cross-examine the weeping man and discredit his memories from the event. However, Robert bravely stood by himself and refused to be scared off. Which is an amazing thing for Robert to do. And I get that the lawyer's doing his job, but a crying witness, like, come on. Gacy thought the whole trial was against him and wanted a retrial to represent himself as he was locked in his self-confidence. More than likely, he was a jackass who thought he was completely in the right. It took two hours for the jury to make a decision, and the decision was lethal to Gacy. Gacy was guilty and sentenced to death. It took 14 years for Gacy to actually be executed. During that time, he got a fair amount of fan mail from mentally ill individuals and found a hobby painting pictures of himself as Pogo and the Seven Dwarfs from Disney Snow White. And it's disgusting to me that you can see like keychains online that you can buy that have like Gacy's sex skull art thing. And you can just have it on your bag or something and it's like, he murdered a bunch of young boys who had a lot of potential and you're just gonna put his art on a keychain and act like it's some sort of trinket. You wasteful pieces of shit. Um, cause Gacy, I guess, was feeling nostalgic. Uh, his last meal was a bucket of KFC chicken, strawberry shortcake, Coca-Cola, and his living family members, counting Gacy's sister, said their emotional goodbyes. They, they, they hated what their brother did to those boys, but they never knew that side of him. To them, what they were seeing was their brother die, and I can honestly see that. I, I get where that family's coming from. On his deathbed in May, on May 10th, 1994, Gacy was asked if he had any last words. Gacy, being the charming creature it was, replied, kiss my ass, and then he died. What a disgusting, awful person. John Wayne Gacy's sister is now middle-aged. Her mother and her other sister have passed away, leaving her and her family to deal with the memories of her brother. Gacy's sister frequently states that if her brother was never executed and was just left in prison, that she would be at every parole hearing pressuring the court never to set her brother free. She also feels a great sadness and empathy for the broken families, missing sons, husbands, boyfriends, and cousins, thanks to her brother. Gacy's sister still loves her brother, but hates the murderous part of him, and to this day she remembers that no one told her they were sorry for the loss of her brother when he was executed in 1992. Sadly, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Ringnall passed away due to complications with AIDS in 2000 at the age of 49, but he actually wrote a book with another author of, on his experience with Gacy. Most of Gacy's paintings were bought by victims' relatives and burned, not long after his execution in celebration. Here's a victim sketch of two of Gacy's unidentified victims. Two victims remain unknown from Gacy's victim list. No one has come forward to claim these victims, and no one knows their identities. At least not yet. It's honestly really sad, like... Gacy is a horrible, horrible human being, but... He had such a rough childhood, and it's clear that he was dealing with a sexuality, and... Now it's so big today, I feel like he would have been a lot more comfortable with it, but... It's so weird to me that... It seems like a lot of these boys were gay, and some of their family was not accepting them. And he could have been that person to, like, tell them that it was okay to be that way, and he came from the same thing. But instead, he's just a 
obsessed with his dad and he just kills these young boys that reminds him of himself and it's just my opinion obviously I don't know a whole lot I'm just a random Canadian just talking about all these random things and but it's very clear there's a connection to me and it's just sad because I feel like even Gacy could have been a lot better but he wasn't he just decided to be an asshole and just ruin all these young boys lives and I'm just glad he's dead. Thank you to everyone who has been so nice to me recently, by the way, um, just on the last note. And I really am thankful for all the support I've gotten on the Gary Heidnick video. Um, I hope you all are doing well and I hope to upload a bit longer. I mean like a, every once in a while more. I just. Uh, it's sometimes hard because I've got so much going on, but thank you to everyone, and I hope you all have a great day. Take care. Uh, leave a comment if you're interested, and like and subscribe, and check the description if you want to listen to that song. And my Instagram and something else is there, I can't remember what it was.